get or be given a hard time when you've been doing something that in your mind was a good thing? <laughs> Anyone? Nobody? Okay, I got one hand in the back. Okay. It's kind of a common experience, right? We Even if you're not a Christian, sometimes that can come to us in ways that often shock us when we're aiming to do something good or pleasant or generous. Um, it's not met, met with um, thankfulness but hostility. We kind of see this happening a little bit here um, in, I feel like I'm not that, like something's going on with the sound. Yeah, okay. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, so you can all hear me though. Is it okay? Just take that reverb away and we're fine. All right. <laughs> all right, so... Um, I got a couple of books that I had to read um, when I was in seminary. Uh, the first one is called Culture Wars. How many people know that right now in the United States there are culture wars happening? Right? They're not, they might not be happening with bombs or guns, um, but most of the time with words, right, or with politics. So I, I had to read this, this book here called Culture Wars um, when I was in seminary. It's a book... Um, that I read again while I was there, and it's really about um, how the world is divided or has different, differing values that are kind of bumping up against each other because of their worldview or their religion. We kind of, we bring our belief system <laughs> into the marketplace, right, um, uh, of our culture, politics, or what have you, and they don't always agree with other people's worldviews, and depending on what part of the world you're in, if you have a differing worldview, you can be killed. Um, it can be as simple as that, and that's not so much common in our culture. Um, rather, the defamation of character, that, that is more common in our culture. So um, there was another book I had to read. Um, these are, are definitely well worth your time and if you're interested in this sort of thing. Um, but cult, this one's called Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America. And it's basically about how different religions and the plurality, uh, the pluralism in our culture has created this kind of tension between our different values. <clears throat> There's another book that I had to read. I don't know if that's a peace sign that he's doing up there. But this one is a very, this is a seminal book called Christ and Culture. It was written by Richard Niebuhr. And his brother, actually, um, if you don't know who that is, you probably have heard of the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change have you heard this so the serenity prayer was written by his brother so the Niebuhr family was a Christian family um, but he wrote this seminal book um, and by seminal I mean like foundational it's one of the first of its kinds it's exhaustive too it's very thick as you can see um, but the Christ and culture is dealing with how Christians are supposed to interact with culture what's our place as Christians do I take my faith to the marketplace or do I keep it in my house or in our churches? Is it private? Is it public? Is it maybe a mix of both? How do we know the difference? Over the millennia, the church has taken different positions on this. There have been five that they identify in this book. And just so that you can understand this a little bit, I'll give you two, because really this is not what the, uh, my sermon's about this morning, but I want you to follow this logic. But the first one he calls Christ against culture. And some of us might be familiar with Christians that can be like that. Christ is against culture. In other words, the surrounding culture around us, the kingdoms of this world, are evil. It is not our job to reform them or transform them. It is our job to escape them. So oftentimes, especially in the past hundred years, fundamentalism in Christianity has created these sorts of like Christian ghettos, which are separate from the culture we do our own, everything's Christian. We have our own Christian stations, Christian music, Christian clothes, right? I don't know that, but well, we have t-shirts, I guess, right? Christian, um, we Christianize everything because we can't be involved or partner or mingle in with the world because the world's evil, right? So that's been, so fundamentalism, some of, I should say, some of fundamentalism in the 21st century has been like that. But, you know, the ancient, some of the ancient monastics were like that. They escaped um, the, the corrupt world, even the corrupt church, and fled to the desert to create sort of these monastery ghettos, right? Does that make sense? Are you with me? So culture is evil. It will never be transformed. So if you're a Christian, just kind of live out your Christian faith with other Christians and try to avoid that as much as you can. 
So that's kind of like, the, that's been the first working theory of how Christians interact with culture. The one that we're more used to, it came from the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli from like the 16th, 15th, 16th centuries, is that Christ is the transformer of culture, right? Christ is the transformer of culture. It sees culture as possessing good, but corrupt by the fall. So it's not all good, but because they are still created in God's image and have a conscience, there are similarities that we have with the world, things that we can learn from the world, yet it is still fallen, and the Christian objective is to preach the gospel so that it might be transformed, right? Christ, as the Redeemer, aims not only to transform creation. Did you know this in Romans? That the creation, like the physical stuff, of the, the mountains and the deers and the bears and all these things, they groan out to be transformed at the re- revealing of the sons of God, right, when Christ returns. So it's not only uh, the creation that God intends to restore, but even culture. So that's the working theory, Christ the transformer of culture. Now, if depending on where you... Now, obviously, that's way over here. There's, there's the, um, another, uh, another one, a third one, that's, that basically is the liberal view, that there's nothing wrong with culture at all. Um, the only thing that's wrong is that we think there's something wrong, <laughs> right? And once we have a healthy self-esteem and we stop thinking that we're bad, then we'll be fine, right? So that's kind of the more, like, the, like the liberal approach to Christ and culture. So depending on where you fall on the spectrum of how the Christian is to engage in culture, that's going to determine your involvement in this, right? The culture wars. You see, if Christ is against culture and we are to separate ourselves from it, then why bother even having a voice in politics and things like this or even being a Christian politician? What's the point? As a matter of fact, it's, it's purposeless, it's useless. The whole world's going to hell, so just don't waste your time, right? So that's kind of like the working theory. I might be exaggerating it a little bit, but, um, but that's kind of the working theory. Depending on where you fall in that spectrum will be where you, how you feel about how you interact or engage with culture. Okay. These wars that we end up in, right? and there, there are many of them today. There's wars over abortion, homosexuality, marriage. I mean, I could throw a bunch of bombs right into the church right now over these things, right? But aren't they happening, you know, irrespective of what I think about each one? They're happening, and we all have thoughts about them and what should or shouldn't be. And I guarantee you that something, uh, that even in this small room, that there's a wide spectrum of disagreement even over, I don't know what the heck that is. What's going on today, guys? (laughs) I'm dropping bombs. (laughs) Right. Um, So, yeah. Can I, is this the mic or is this something else? Because I can't, I can put up with some noise from you guys, but I can't. That that's going to distract me. All right, it stopped. All right, let's go. Here we go. <clears throat> so these wars, sort of, we engage in them. They're in our. Oh God. <laughs> Forget that. I'll take this one. It's not me. Oh, all right. <laughs> Okay, were you like stepping on a wire or something? That's probably what it was. Okay, um, where was I? All right, let's go home. I, I <laughs> now, we observed some of these culture wars recently. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to local news, but we observed some of this play out in the Rhode Island State House this week, um, where people of differing faiths, differing worldviews, had sharply different opinions over the issue of abortion. <clears throat> And if you've been watching some of the news, you, you'll have been aware of some of what's been going on. Um, they, they recently passed this bill um, called the Reproductive Privacy Act that would basically codify Roe v. Wade in the state of Rhode Island. And that basically means that if Roe v. Wade changes, that the state in Rhode Island won't have to necessarily change. I don't really understand law or politics, so if I'm getting this wrong, please excuse me. But it was an important, it was a big deal, I, I suppose, um, that this, this, um, this bill would pass, this Reproductive Privacy Act. And again, it's, the aim was to create a preemptive strike if Roe v. Wade um, is overturned because of the new, con- like, more conservative leanings. There's this concern in liberal, liberal America because this, the Supreme Court is becoming more conservative. 
Right? So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, what's that going to mean for us? So states that don't have Roe v. Wade co codified, if Roe v. Wade changes, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong after church, um, they still have like, um, some ground to stand on with respect to um, this issue. Uh, during the debate, um, it was interesting how we stereotype what we believe based on our, the letter that we vote on, <laughs> right? Like if you're a Democrat or a Republican. But during the debate, a Democrat stood up from Cumberland. His name was James McLaughlin, and he said this, who are we to decide who is going to live and who is going to die? The day after Lent, he said, he's Catholic, the day after Lent, here we are, thou shalt not kill, but the killing fields continue. That was his opinion, one of many. So, here, so this is sort of what I mean. He is in a culture war, and he has a specific view on what he should do with his values in that culture. And we all have this, by the way. We all operate. We might not have thought it through. Um, theologically, we just kind of sometimes live in our own head, and we do what we do. But this is what's happening right now. You know that this isn't new in history either. Um, in the 18th century, you know that there was this, this uh, trade that was horrific and evil called the slave trade. Um, and in 18th century England, did you know that Christians divided over this issue? Did you know that the Southern Baptist Convention, that at the time, the Baptists, the Baptist denomination in the United States was one denomination, and they divided over this issue? And the Southern Baptist Convention was created as opposed to the American Baptists, which is our friends right here down at the end of the road, and a lot of Baptist churches in New England are American Baptists for that reason, because they divided over the issue of slavery, right? So even Christians have culture wars, don't they? We disagree about what, what, what side of things that we need to stand on, but this was happening in the 18th century, um, Shortly after the, the, the American War for Independence, men like William Wilberforce would stood up, at, stood up as a politician, as a young politician in England and basically advocated for the rights of African people. And eventually that led to the liberation of the African people and the annihilation of the English slave trade. Um, an, American, uh, an, an amazing man um, stood up for what he believed was right and was informed not only by his own conscience but by what he believed God's will was. And he, he felt so strongly about this that he invaded his culture with it. Okay? So for centuries, <clears throat> even millennia, the Christian gospel and the attitudes and behaviors that is promoted, did you know, has been met with resistance. I'm not trying to, um, to take aside this. I have, I have my views on this, and I'm not afraid to talk about them either, even from up here, but that's not really the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is to simply say this, that when we as Christians advocate for Christ, it's not always met kindly. It's often met with resistance and anger. So what should the Christian posture or the Christian reaction be to this hostility when we encounter it? That's the question I aim to answer this morning. What should our attitude be? What should our response be? I've, I've um, been in mixed crowds with different various Christians who I, who I no doubt b believe um, have good hearts and are well-intended. But, but sometimes the way I hear a Christian talk to a person who is not a Christian, it, it brings my heart shame that that person is not meeting this, this other person who is lost and confused with love and patience, right? So this morning, I want to address this question. Christians haven't always been on the right side either, by the way, of injustice. Sometimes the world has. So we can't make a claim that the church has always done the right thing. Sometimes we have not, and sometimes we need to change our mind about an issue. <clears throat> So I'm not here to correct anyone's views about these things, but just simply to say, how do we respond to people who might disagree with what is core to our faith, who might attack it? A guy named Howard Marshall, he's a scholar, and, um, a Bible scholar and a commentator, he says this, there are those who are vigorously attacked for their faith and those who are ignored and quietly tolerated. Right, so in other words, he's saying some Christians 
are literally hunted down, tortured, and murdered for their Christian faith, while others simply are quietly tolerated. How many people, that's us, I think, in our culture by and large. We generally don't fear for our lives or fear for physical pain or even in general like kind of monetary types of issues. We don't feel like we're going to get segregated for our faith. Things like this, we're generally accepted in the wider culture, right? We don't fear for our lives, but we're quietly tolerated. So I guess the, the, the way that I can describe it most is I get the sense sometimes when I'm talking about my faith to some people, I'm getting this look like they think, I'm either crazy or stupid, <laughs> right? And they're trying to, as politely as possible, just get through the conversation with, and they're trying to find something to, be, to, to agree with me on, <laughs> right? How, you, have you been there in, with yourself, with anybody there, with anyone that you might know? So oftentimes, we're not physically attacked, but we're either ignored or quietly tolerated, <clears throat> So like I said, it's not my aim in the sermon to describe what your posture should be towards culture or what, where, where sh- you should fall on the, the side of the, these different culture wars. We can have a conversation about that later. But I want to talk specifically this morning as we exposit our text. We're asking how a Christian and the Christian community should respond to persecution when that persecution is the direct result of distinctive Christian values. So, in other words, we get persecuted for doing dumb things. We'll see that, right? We get persecuted for disagreeing on politics, maybe not unrelated to our faith. There's many different reasons why we, we, could, we might become persecuted, right? But what I'm talking about here is that when that persecution is the distinct result of your Christian faith, because you're a Christian. Does that make sense? <clears throat> in our human experience you know that there is often pain, physical pain or emotional pain, that is the result of this persecution or suffering. And when we expect that pain, when we, 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 when we sort of kind of know that the common reaction to the expression of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected is that people are just kind of either yawn or make fun of us, right? We tend to want to shriek back from even having the conversation to begin with. Let's not forget, by the way, that Jesus Christ even feared pain. You say, oh, oh, Kyle, Jesus Christ feared? That's Well, do you remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, pleading to God the Father, if there is another way, please let me take that way. He was afraid of the pain, but he didn't let that fear control him. Because he said, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, courage isn't the absence of fear. Oftentimes people that have courage have a lot of fear about what they're about to embark in. Friends, there is Jesus, our living example of someone who continues on to demonstrate who God is, even though it caused him great suffering. So fear of the future, or if you're anticipating consequences of kind of maintaining a public faith in Jesus can invite us to ask, like, is it worth it? I'm so tired of not fitting in, of people thinking that I'm some relic of the past. How crazy are we? We have science. Where have you been the past hundred years? You really believe Mary was a virgin? What are you, nuts? Like, you know, sometimes people might be as bold to say that to you, but most of the time people... I think some are kind of thinking it and just being polite and trying to find something nice about me. Well, you got nice eyes, you know, like, okay, we can keep you around, you, you know, like. So we shriek back, don't we, from certain actions or words or encounters simply because we want, we want to avoid the pain or the consequences. So this section of Scripture begins to answer the question that Peter is going to ask, and he's going to answer this question for almost the rest of the book or the letter that he's writing. If we will live conspicuously holy as Christians, if we're to be open and consistent Christ followers in the culture that surrounds us, what will be the consequence? And Peter says, in more or less words, expect persecution. 
So now he takes up the question of, well, how do we respond to that persecution? And he describes two things, the gift and outcome of suffering for Christ's sake. The gift of suffering and the outcome of suffering for Christ's sake. And he gives us four points to meditate on. The first is a general principle. The second is a blessing. The third is freedom. And the fourth is mission. So let's start to unpack this, okay? Verse 13, it says this. This says, general principle. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? That's the question Peter first asks. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, there is a true principle and a general principle in life experience and in the Bible is that persecution is normally the result of wrongdoing. General, generally speaking, human beings have a common virtue. Now, that's true, right? The Bible teaches that all humanity is born fallen under sin, under the curse of Adam's sin, yet, be, yet those sinners, places like Romans 1 and many others, describe even fallen humanity as possessing a conscience because they are still yet created in the image of God. That's why I don't have to convince most people that it's wrong to murder or steal or lie. We're going to have these things in common in general, whether you're a Christian or not. <clears throat> because of humanity's shared virtues and that similar moral code and compass, when we do good, normally we're not going to be persecuted for the good that we do. Normally in business, when we're honest and we show up on time and we work hard, like these kind of virtues and instructions that we have from Scripture, normally, because that's embedded into the conscience of even fallen humanity, that's going to be met with respect and promotion. Normally. <laughs> you say, oh, wait, wait a minute. Nah, uh Well, normally. Just underline normally, okay? Because there are exceptions. We'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> so times in my life when I've been kind, when I've been generous, when I've respected life, when I've chosen to be honest, that's normally received in humane societies with respect. And that's Peter's point in verse 13. Who is going to harm you for doing good? The, the rhetorical question has an implied answer. In general, you won't be harmed for doing good. Normally, very few people are going to harm you for doing good. So the Christian quote in our text is eager to do good for God's sake and for the sake of his neighbor. So we don't view the Christian virtue begrudgingly. Isn't that interesting? Scripture says, do good with eagerness. Right? Like there's this anticipation or excitement that we should have surrounding our opportunity to do good. And so, so often we complain. I'm doing the right thing, but I don't want to. Right? Like that's how we feel inside and we kind of have a sourpuss about it. But, but Peter says, do good eagerly. Eagerly. And like I said, the Christian lifestyle in many ways complements even the most pagan culture's virtues. And friends, as the Christian lifestyle complements larger society or parallels like the secular conscience, it's not in general going to be met with resistance. That's why, by the way, we as a church don't get in trouble when we go to the police and give them lunch. They're not mad at us for that. Right? That's why they helped us when we went to go help out the elderly down the road. You see, we're, we're not, they're not upset with us over those, what I would call even Christian virtues, to love our neighbors. You see, we're not getting persecuted for that. So in general, again, the rule is, who is going to harm you for doing good? In general, you won't be. So Peter's encouraging us to remember this. That when we exercise the Ten Commandments in our lives, not only are we the better for it, but it will be an encouragement to, the, to our neighbors and to our culture and to our society. Does that make sense? But what about when you are? <laughs> That's what you're all thinking right now. You see, because there's exceptions. And usually, the hundred times when you are applauded for demonstrating your faith, it all pales. It all goes away when there's one time when it's not. You see? 
So we draw this broad stroke and say, I'm always, I'm a suffering Christian all the time. Well, in general, that's probably not true. But you are going through a very real trial in a certain circumstance. So what do we do? Peter comments this way in 14a and 17, verse 17. But even if you should suffer for what is right, oh, watch this, what he says. You are blessed. You're blessed? You're blessed? No, that's not what I would say. I would say even if you should suffer for what is right, just get through it. It's lousy. You're going to heaven one day, right? Like, you are blessed? Right now, this is the, the way that this is worded in the original Greek, you're blessed now. He's not pointing to heaven. He's pointing to your life in that moment. Yet not you'll eventually be blessed when Jesus comes. No, in the moment of the persecution, you're blessed. I don't know that I would describe persecution as a blessing. In verse 7 it says, For it is better, if it is God's will, for to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's talk about this. Shockingly, Peter tells us that if we're suffering for something that is distinctly Christian, that we are not under God's curse, but his blessing. His makarios is the Greek word. His blessing. His happiness. Happy. As a general rule, like we said, people don't persecute others for doing good, but these rules have exceptions. And it's often true that while many Christian virtues are shared in larger society, other distinctly Christian messages are not shared. And because of the nature of that message at times and culture, depending on where the culture is at, it will incite a very vigorous anger and hostility towards the view. You see, the, the messages, the, the items might have been changed over the years, but it's still the same response. The Christian voice addressed an old issue um, a while back. I don't know if you recall this, but a while back there was the Christian voice or the Christian culture was addressing uh, the AIDS epidemic. And the way that they said, you know, one way um, that we could help or like help eliminate this AIDS epidemic is to go back to a Judeo-Christian value of sex inside the confines of marriage. In other words, abstinence um, is the rule. So when we, when, when, when we behave sexually, it should be in the context of marriage. Now, you might think that, like, that's unrealistic and who's going to do that, but that was the response. If, if culture, by and large, would adapt to that virtue, then the AIDS em- epidemic would drastically be reduced, which is pro- m- more than likely true. So they invited people to consider this, sexual fidelity and Christian, what have been, been normal Christian sexual ethics for the millenn- over the millennia as the simplest and cheapest prophylactic against the spread of AIDS. But it was met almost most with anger, with hostility, that you're trying to put on your Christ- Christian virtues onto the wider society. You see, so over the years, when, when the Christian church has tried to engage culture, when, when there's been a value that has been distinctly Christian, that even when it's presented with love, it's still met with this sort of resistance. Okay? What do we do? In these cases, the first thing Peter says for us to do is to remember that you're blessed. We're going to unpack why you're blessed in a few moments, but remember that you are under God's blessing. And when the resistance comes, friends, you are under God's blessing. And when you know that, it will help you not to hate the person resisting you. Isn't that true? When you know that you're right smack in the middle of where God wants you to be and that God is over you, he is sovereign over your life and loves you and is directing you, he helps you have courage and love instead of fear and hate. Amen? So these verses show us a sort of progression. So let's review a little bit in the Christian interaction with culture and the Christian life. Christians, number one, are presumed to be living the Christian life in a way consistent with Christ. That's the presumption. So in other words, he's talking to Christians, and he's presuming that they're actually following Jesus. 
okay? Number two, that living, that Christian living, that following Jesus is not hidden. It's living out the Christian faith. It's identifiable. Why would you be persecuted for something that nobody knows about? So you're, you're living your Christian life not in secret, but in the open. And didn't we see this happen to Daniel? Right? He was told to, um, to not pray. Is, is that Daniel or the three Hebrew boys? Yeah, so Daniel was told to, told to, to not pray. And he said, well, I'm going to pray. And he does it in front of a window. <laughs> right? They made the, the government made it against the law to pray. So David says, well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to keep praying because God tells me to pray. Not only am I going to pray, but you're going to see me do it. The culture is going to see Not other Christians in a basement. The culture is going to see me do this, to pray. Then the three Hebrew boys did the same thing. You remember that? They were told, worship um, Nebuchadnezzar. I think it was Nebuchadnezzar. They said, no, we're not doing it. So they threw him into a big fiery furnace. Right? So here they're living their Christian life on public display, not in secret. So that's the, the, the first point is you're actually living a life that follows Jesus. The second is that you're not hiding that life. The third is that aspects of the Christian life and message are going to be resisted and oppressed. And the fourth principle that we see here is that the suffering that results from the living out of that life is God's blessing on your life. Now that is radical. That seems bizarre. It seems crazy. But that you, that's what the word of God says. That's what the title of the sermon. You are blessed. You are blessed. You know that Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are you. The gifts God gives in return are more, more than compensates for the suffering endured. The gift God gives you in return for the suffering more than compensates for the suffering in return for the suffering endured. It's better to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. And why? Simply because it comes with God's blessing as you participate in his will to bring his kingdom into someone else's life. We're going to get to that at the end. We endure the pain of dental surgery. Why do we do that? How many people have had dental surgery? Why did you do it? Most, sometimes it's because the dentist saw something coming up, right, and it's preemptive. But a lot of times we have dental surgery because we got a toothache. You're in pain every day, and it hurts. So why do you go through dental surgery? Knives being stuck into your mouth, right? Blood and Novocaine and all that. I mean, isn't that, isn't that awful to do? Well, you're doing it because you understand that through that pain, you'll alleviate another pain, right? Your toothache will be gone. You'll be rid of it. Friends, we're blessed for Christ's sake in suffering because suffering is what he uses in this world to be a Christian mission to people around us, to restore the world for Christ's sake and for his love, okay? Do you, re- do you remember, we mentioned this, Mary's call? God calls Mary, right? We could read it a different way than what Mary read it. Mary, you're, you're going to have a son and people are going to hate your guts because you're a virgin. They're not going to believe you. And then they're going to take that son and torture him and beat him up and lie about him. And then they're going to stick, they're gonna stick um, railroad-sized spikes through his hands and his feet. And you're going to watch him brutally tortured and murdered before your eyes. I mean, that's what happens to Mary, right? But that's not the, that, those are not the glasses that she looks at this announcement with. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he that is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You see, why? Why did she have that perspective? Because through the pain of the cross came salvation. The problem of her soul problem, and everyone else is around her. So it was worth it. Amen? You are blessed. The result of this outlook, number three, is soul freedom. Freedom, verses 14 and 15. We'll read that 14b and 15a. 
Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In other words, don't have fear, have hope. Replace fear in suffering, in persecution, with hope. Freedom from crippling fear. I don't want to say that it's freedom from all fear. What's implied here is that you're going to be afraid. If we have to be told not to be afraid, the implication is that we're going to experience moments of fear. But, But Peter says, don't be afraid. Don't let fear rule. Don't let it reign. But revere Christ as Lord in your hearts. So the Christian doesn't need to be afraid of anyone's threats. For the same reason we already mentioned, we get courage to endure pain when we know that through that pain will come relief. Through that pain will come the Savior who saves and rescues. You know, some of you might be going through some pain right now. Maybe it's related to your witness for Christ. Maybe it's not. But at the end of the day, how you respond to your pain, no matter what the source is, your response will be a witness to Christ. We'll get to that in a second. You want to be free, right, of crippling fear, free of being afraid of tomorrow, free of being afraid of what someone might think about you. The goal is to be mindful that the threatening person or the threatening situation isn't in charge of your life. Right? They're not in charge of your life. If we get anything from Scripture, it's that. That this person, I got picked on a lot when I was a kid. Did you know that? Can you believe it? Right? But I was. I was picked on a lot when I was a kid. I could name them right now and totally roast them, but I won't do that. But I was. I was picked on a lot when I, when, when I was a kid. Um, I don't need to be afraid of them. Right? I don't. Because God doesn't pick on me. He's my defender. He's my provider. Oh, friend, whatever's going on in your life, whatever fear that you're holding on to, would you open up your hands and give it to God and trust him? Our Heavenly Father is mindful of your life. He's in charge of your life, and he's directing it. You remember that wonderful Psalm 23? You all know this, don't you? The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I can lack nothing. He feeds me in the green pastures and brings me forth besides the waters of comfort. He converts my soul. And he brings me forth in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, my God, and my, thy rod and thy staff will comfort me. You'll prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. In the valley of death, that's what he's saying. My cup overflows. Friends, when your soul is fully assured that the chief shepherd is with you in the valley of death, And that he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. You will not have abiding, soul-crushing fear, but you'll have hope. A mind that hallows or reveres Christ as Lord. That's what our text says. Do not be afraid, but revere Christ as Lord. The word for revere is hallow. Hallowed be thy name, right? You know that it says that they're quoting in this this section, Isaiah, they're referencing, I should say, Isaiah chapter 8. Do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what, that's a whole other sermon, but just think about that. Do not fear what they fear. Wow. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now that sounds like, well, that, i got to dread God. That doesn't sound right. Okay, let's talk about it. You know, that larger culture fears common things. Disease, poverty, unemployment. We, we're kind of afraid of rejection, you know, from friends or peers or family. We, we have these kind of common fears as humanity. And God says, don't fear what they fear. 
Don't dread it, but regard God as holy and fear him. You know that what you fear is what you consider holy? Okay? Holy is to be hallowed. The, the word hallow is to sanctify or to make holy. So the word revere is saying sanctify the Lord as your, as your, as your God. Sanctify him as your God. Make him holy. Recognize that he is the Holy One and nothing else is. So what you fear is what you hollow. is what you set apart. That's what that word means. What we fear is what is holy to us. Meaning what is set apart to us. What is most important to you? Can I say it like that? What is most important to you will be the source of all your fear. You see, when you hold something up that's not God, where God was supposed to be, you're going to fear that thing. You're going to be afraid. Am I going to lose it? I got it, but am I going to lose it? Or I don't have it. Will I ever have it? Right? Like the, the chaos of the soul. Am I alone here? Right? Like, but when God is in that spot and we fear him, we can trust him. We can trust what he says. He doesn't change his mind. He says he loves us and he adopts us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when we fear him, we fear the right thing. We have confidence in the one, the object, who is hallowed to us. Does that make sense? So if we hallow the Lord, we won't be afraid of anything else. We'll be free. Our souls will be free. Persecution for Christ's sake becomes a blessing, a freedom of soul, when grounded in God's promise that he is holy and trustworthy. And finally, you know what the outcome of all this is? It's fruit. It's a fruitful mission, number four. Fruitful mission. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. What's the context? Who's asking? The one persecuting you. The one that hates your guts. That's, right? <laughs> That's the context here. It's not talking about the nice guy down the road, you know, your neighbor May, who always gives you brownies. It's talking about the person who is trying to cut your head off. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Wow. Isn't that incredible? If someone were trying to kill me, I'd have some expletives. How dare you? Do you know who I am? You're evil. God's going to deal with you. Right? That's what I'd say. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I could just start to cry. But right, like, give them a reason for the hope that you have in gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Did you see that? that that's a very important phrase. May be ashamed of their slander. In the context of this passage, in the context of Scripture, it's talking about conversion, if they're ashamed of the way they're treating us, it's because they are changing their mind about who Jesus is. They're regretting the way that they treated us because they know that Jesus is Lord. How do they get to know that? How do they know that? By your love. You treated them with love when you should have picked up a gun and fired back. And that will make, the Bible says that that will make people that hate Christians, stop, stop for a moment and start to ask questions. Why are you so hopeful? It's right there in the text, isn't it? Give a reason for the hope that you have. People with hope don't retaliate. They love. Isn't that true? So persecution, is an persecution for Christ's sake is an opportunity for Christian mission. So we need to be both ready to present that witness and eager to see people who are hostile towards us come to know the love of Christ themselves, to see his mercy and his love. When Christians are persecuted for the cause of Christ, it creates a curiosity in the persecutor. Why would they suffer for this message? Why do they endure this without retaliation? And here is the Christian's opportunity to give a reason for that hope. And, and apologia is the Greek word, a defense. 
What is your hope grounded in? What is the basis of it? You know, if people are asking us this question, Peter's saying we have to be ready to know the answer to it. We have to be, in other words, students of our own faith to know what we believe and why we believe it, to be ready and eager to present the gospel message to anyone who comes asking about it. We need to be waiting for these opportunities as, because it's the mission and purpose of your life. It's why you suffer for Christ's sake if you are suffering for Christ's sake. The reason you are suffering for Christ's sake is to present the witness of Christ to the persecutor. And you do this with gentleness and respect. I heard Ravi Zacharias say this once. He said there's an old Indian proverb. He said, don't cut a person's nose off and then give him a rose to smell. You get it? That's what we can do. We're so mad at people for not being Christian or, and, for, and for saying nasty things about us or unkind things about us. So our response is, well, I'm just going to wield the same sword. I'm going to prove that you're an idiot, right? And here's why you're wrong. And we, we have no love, no compassion, no gentleness, no respect. We cut their nose off, and then we say, oh, by the way, Jesus loves you. Here's a rose. Smell it. They can't smell anymore. They're not listening to you anymore. Oh, friends, with gentleness and respect is the purpose that God allows us to go into persecution so that the persecutor will be saved. That they might be saved and love the God they currently have no time for or maybe even hate. Gentleness and respect in the face of harsh persecution ignites even the harshest of critics of non-Christians now confused by that loving response. It makes them think again as their abuse is returned with love. That's what happens. You know that happened to the Roman soldier participating in the murder of Christ? He realized, what am I doing? What has he done? Did you know that happened to the Apostle Paul? He stood by the robes of of the men murdering Stephen for his witness for Christ. And the Apostle Paul was watching Stephen not retaliate in angry abuse, but testify of the love of Christ and the salvation available to the same people stoning him. And Stephen looked up to heaven as it was opened to him. He was killed, and Saul stood by the robes and watched it happen. Friends, who's watching your robes? Someone's watching your robes. You know, when, the, when a throne gets stoned, uh, uh, op, yeah, opposite, when a stone gets thrown, hey, you try to preach, you get up here, right? <laughs> when, when a stone gets thrown at you, who's watching your robe? You know, a lot of times my kids are watching my robes. Right? I live with them most often, and my wife, they see it. My kids, they're awesome, but they're, they're so young that the, the concept of the gospel, I think, is just foreign to them. They're watching me. They're watching my robes. They're standing by. Right? So someone's watching your robes, friends. Christian friend, what will your witness be like? Will you be ready? Will you be compassionate? Will you be gentle? Hopeful? Oh, I hope that's the case. Can I encourage us? with some thoughtful questions. Do I demonstrate the life of Christ? Do I so demonstrate the life of Christ that it is even noticed as markedly different? You you get the question? Am I living the same way everyone else is? So what's, what's to even notice? Why even ask anything? Do I become angry If I am following Christ, right, and someone's noticing, do I become angry when they don't like me for it? Do I reject them and slander them in return? Or do I rejoice that that God is using a wicked moment to potentially confer a heart that he loves to salvation in Christ? Saul stood by the cloaks of Stephen when he was being stoned to death as he testified the death and resurrection 
of Jesus. And let's remember again, let's ask that question. Who's watching your coat? Someone is. Someone sees. If you don't know Jesus this morning, would you come to understand something wonderful about the gospel message? Now, this sermon, I I have to admit, by and large, is for people, Christians, already. It's to equip Christians, to encourage them to live gently, to live their faith openly, but gently and respectfully to people around them. So by and large, this sermon is for Christians. But if you don't know Jesus yet, can you find something in it for you? And here's what it is. Isn't it amazing that God loves you so much that even when you throw rocks at people that love you, that the reason God is allowing you to do it is because he loves you too. He wants you. He wants us to love you so so that you might see how lovely he is. Isn't that great? How much does God love us? That he'll put, he'll put up with such slander and such anger and how patient he is to draw us to himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask, Lord, that if anyone Jesus Christ this morning, that they would put their trust that Jesus Christ was slandered, abused, murdered, so that they would never have to be separate from God the Father. They would never have to be the object of God's, the Father's anger and wrath and separation. But Jesus satisfied all the demands of the law in, in his death and resurrection, in our place. And if you don't know him, friend, lay it down. Lay those sins down and come to him. He's everything you ever wanted and more. Trust in him. Say, God, save me a sinner. I want to be saved. I want to have relationship with you. I want to follow you. I want to be a witness for you. And if God is turning your heart right now and you're confessing faith in Christ, friends, you are saved. Your sins are forgiven. There's no hoop you've got to jump through. There's no class you've got to take. Simply come in repentant faith to Jesus Christ.